There we go. All right, everyone, welcome back to Swan Signal Live. This is episode 32. On this edition, we've got two Bitcoin philosophers for you, two of my very favorite writers in the space, Parker Lewis and Robert Breedlove. We're going to get a great conversation uh, with the two of them today. Before we start and dive in, I'll give you a quick chill on what we're doing here at Swan. We have built the best way, the easiest way, the safest way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys. You don't need to time the market. You don't need to even worry about logging back into an exchange. You just set up an account. Tell us how much you want to stack, how often you want to stack it. We'll stack it for you. You can also automatically withdraw it. So once you set up your account, the whole process is basically getting a confirmation email into your inbox. You click that, you've withdrawn your, your sats. You can set a threshold on that withdrawal. It's so easy. It's almost magical uh, as we hear from some of our uh, customers. It's a great experience. So send your family and friends our way. Uh, we will treat them right. We're laser focused on Bitcoin only, no distractions from altcoins. We're focused on education. We'll help sort of be your wingman in teaching people about what Bitcoin is, your friends and family. Uh, you can join the Swan Force as you start referring your friends and family at swanbitcoin.com slash enlist. You'll make 25% of the fees uh, all, of all the... Uh, purchases that your referrals make, you make 25% of those fees. So you'll stack some sats while we're helping your friends and family become hodlers. A couple more quick shout outs before we get on. Um, first, our Telegram group. We have a great active group in Telegram talking Bitcoin and all of the tangential topics around Bitcoin. That's at t.me slash swan signal. Come join us there. It's a lot of fun to hang out. Uh, you know, most of the swan team is hanging out there uh all the time we get into you know more in-depth conversations than we can on twitter so check that out and also the bitcoin arsenal our creative director brecky von bitcoin has been collecting all of the dankest bitcoin memes out there and uh working with some of the meme masters to create this repository called the bitcoin arsenal that's at swanbitcoin.com arsenal uh and bitcoin underscore arsenal on twitter really cool project so check that out all right, I'd like to welcome Robert Breedlove to the show. You all know Robert. Uh, he has dropped some amazing pieces lately and is really stepping up his content production game. I'm, I know you're happy to see it. I'm happy to see it. Rob, welcome to the show, man. Hey, Brady. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely, man. And we've got Parker Lewis again on the show as well, author of the Gradually Then Suddenly series at Unchained Capital blog. Parker, what's up, man? How you doing? Doing well, Brady. Thanks for having me on again. And uh, always, always a pleasure to... Mix it up with uh, with Robert here as well. So looking forward to it. Absolutely, yeah. Like I said, these guys are two of my very favorite Bitcoin writers. Uh, I know that's a broadly held and broadly shared opinion. Uh, so let, let's get right into it, guys. Um, you know, one thing that you guys do, I think, better than you know anyone else who's writing in the space, is really establishing the uh, degree to which these inequalities that are perpetuated by the fiat system. Um, you know, are wreaking havoc on our lives and our society. Uh, Parker, in your piece, uh, Bitcoin is one for all. Uh, in Rob's piece, uh, Masters and Slaves of Money, you guys describe how uh, fiat is kind of like the money of the few, the money of the masters, and the, you know, devastating effects that this reality wreaks on uh, our, our society and civilization individuals. Uh, I'd love to hear you guys discuss this idea back and forth um, about how fiat money perpetuates inequality, the historical scale at which this crime is being perpetuated. Um, Rob, you want to kick it off? Yeah, sure. Um, so I frame it up in Masters and Slaves of Money as um, 
I got this, I guess I was inspired by this from a creature from Jekyll Island originally, where he actually describes central banking as a currency counterfeiting operation. So the first aspect to understand about money and, and fiat currency in general is that it only has value because it was once redeemable for real money, right? It was redeemable for monetary metal. And it was introduced as an innovation to help resolve some of its its limitations. Um, you know, specifically gold is not uh, exactly optimal in the portability or divisibility department. So paper backed by gold um, resolves some of that. And what, once a bank though moves beyond a one-to-one uh, being one unit of currency per one ounce of gold, for instance, and they start going to two to one, three to one, whatever. They're basically, uh, it's, it's, it's a lie. It's a, it's a fraudulent operation at that point. And governments historically have always abused the money supply as the primary mechanism for extracting, basically scalping value off of the society that's forced to use it. And so in the Masters and Slaves piece, I try... I guess there's two ways to look at this. You could look at money, the scarcity of money as mapping onto the scarcity of time, which everything in an economy is the product of human time. Uh, and one point there is like even land takes hands to sell. So like even if we think it's something God given that we didn't create per se, it still takes human time and effort to sell it and make it usable, so on and so forth. So everything we trade is a product of human time. And another way to look at that is you could say that the scarcity of money maps onto the scarcity of energy, which, you know, thermodynamics teaches us uh, the law of conservation of energy. Energy cannot be created nor destroyed. So basically it's absolutely scarce. And uh, once you start abusing that, that function, you're using the, the counterfeited currency, which is, which is now no longer actually money because it's not a final extinguisher of debt. You're using that currency to siphon value or time off of the society that's forced to use it. And I guess in a, in a broad strokes kind of nutshell, that's how I tried to frame it in Masters and Slaves of Money, that fiat currency is essentially a pyramid scheme um, that is designed to, to scalp value off of citizens and reallocate it to those nearest the fiat currency spigot. Parker, you want to build on that? Yeah, I think that I've certainly, I think is particularly in the last piece that I wrote, um, released probably about a month ago now, but Bitcoin's one for all. I, I really, because I think, I think the themes that I talk about, you know, Robert and I both take two very different approaches to talking about kind of essentially what is, what is the reality and what's occurring. And, you know, I think that th there's, there's a result of it and, Oftentimes, I'll, I'll describe Bitcoin as saying Bitcoin is very difficult to see, but once once something clicks and once uh, there's a connection made and you, un you you start to understand how this thing Bitcoin could be possible and how it could be viable as money, um, that that it's difficult to unsee that, and that over time it comes becomes more and more intuitive. And I think the same thing because it's the the, the you know, other side of the same coin is the Fed. It's once you see it for what it is then it's difficult to unsee and that 
as you are seeing it and seeing the, the, the consequences of the actions that the Fed takes, um, it becomes very easy not to singularly blame the, the Fed's operations for a lot of the um, the economic imbalance and the extreme levels of equality, but but just the, the general unrest that 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 once that kind of chink in the armor forms and you start to kind of see really the fundamental role that money plays in coordinating all economic activity, then it starts to become very intuitive that if you start to manipulate that function, how whether it's intended or unintended, how there can be you know kind of significant unintended consequences and and really negative externalities from that kind of core operation of you know, kind of printing money or digitally creating it through quantitative easing. And, you know, I think that I, I thought the Roberts piece, Masters of Slaves uh, Money was great. I think there's another way that I look at it that is, you know, like if I, when I see somebody like Neil Kashkari get on 60 Minutes and talk about how they have an endless amount of money to print, like I don't think that Neil Kashkari is somebody that wants poor people to suffer or wants to, you know, kind of advantage you know, really powerful people over weak people. You know, I, I think that part of that's just, you know, uh, you know, it, it may, may be an errant bias, but wanting to, to believe in the good of people, but at the same time recognizing he just doesn't understand it, right? That, that so many people that have grown up because all that is taught is, you know, from a, from a um, I'd say academic perspective in terms of economics over the last 40, 50 years is that, Active management of the money supply is a default activity. That that that, that the beginning assumption of, of that operation is that it that there is some good to be served in the world by doing that, and then it's a matter of how do you affect it to to operationalize the the, the most beneficial outcomes. If you turn that entirely on its head, which was maybe that entire assumption is wrong, then you can start to see, or at least you can explain away the behavior of central bankers everywhere in not necessarily intending to do harm, but not really being the master of their own domain, where it's like they think that everything that it is that they're doing is helping in some marginal way, but it's actually the root source of the problem. It, it is actually what creates imbalance and whether or not they want to accept it, that is the reality. And you know, again, what Bitcoin represents is not only the thing that fixes that, but it represents um, free market competition that takes it out of an intellectual debate and into a true market test where the actual individual is empowered with an option to look at these two systems and choose voluntarily which one they want to, to contribute and store their time and value in and what, what, what economy that they want to participate in because it ultimately is two divergent economies that are forming on top of two different monetary systems. Right. And what point does economies merge, Parker? Well, I, I think... Or how does that happen? I don't think that they merge. I think that one wins and one loses. Sure. Uh, and that we're all just people operating in the world, but that more and more people will exit, you know, say, say there's 350 million people in the United States or 325 million people in the United States that are you know, contributing to varying degrees at, at you know at different levels of, of economic activity. So kind of immediately local economies, state economies, national economies, global economies, but thinking of each one as a derivative of others and, and that there are overlaps. And that today practically everyone in the United States is still participating in the dollar economy. But as knowledge distributes and people learn about Bitcoin and, and I and, and I think about it this way because oftentimes we talk about how um, 
you know, at least when we think about monetary maximalism or, you know, kind of in the, the, the term that was coined Bitcoin maximalism, which is more, I think, descriptive in the sense that there's a reason why monetary networks are monopolistic. And, and that oftentimes people say that, um, you know, economies converge on a single form of money. But, but, but I think more realistically, it's that economies emerge from a single form of money rather than um, converging on one. And that, 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 that the, the economic activity and the markets that form around it are actually derived or only made possible because everyone decides to use a form of, uh, the same form of money. And so that it could be the same universe of people, say there's 325 million people and they're all participating in some form or fashion in, in various different economies. And that over time that completely all of those individuals will shift over to Bitcoin. And that those two economies will look very different, but the constituents that make it up will all be the same or, or you know, realistically not uniformly, but that the, the same actors that are participating today will be participating increasingly in the Bitcoin economy, but will we'll, at the core of it, will have a different pricing mechanism and will have a different um, standard by which to assess value and to transfer value. And the, that, that it would be, um, errant, or I think it would be irrational to believe that once we're all on a Bitcoin standard, that the economy like will still be kind of, you know, we'll still have trade and specialization, but the things that we're, we're demanding and the things that people are delivering and the things that people value on a Bitcoin standard will be very different. And, and that, that, that those, that value will be more true in that world. And there will be a lot more stability, um, but it takes time to essentially, you know, I say not converge those two economies, but to transition from one world to the other. Yeah, I think there's a great point here and I've had a lot of discussions uh, with people about it regarding the intentionality of central banking. And um, I, for, for instance, I tweeted, this is several months ago, Jerome Powell is on you know, giving on live TV saying that central banking monetary policy has nothing to do with wealth inequality. This was maybe three or four months ago. And I basically tweeted out and said, this guy's lying to you. Right. And I got a reply from one of my friends. He's a hedge fund manager over in Europe. And he's replying to me saying, you're crazy. Jerome Powell is a good guy. He's just doing what he thinks is best. You know, he's trying to do his job. Well, like it's wrong of you to call him a liar. And I actually don't disagree, and I'm not sure. I don't know if Jerome Powell or, or Kashari, is it Kashari saying they have infinite cash. I'm not clear whether they understand the implications of their operation or not. But what I am clear on, and again, reading the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, is that this institution was established with a, a very specific intent, and it was to maintain uh, control over the economy, essentially, to be able to extract value from the economy at will and to fund warfare, which is another aspect that, that Vijay talks about. So the way the counter argument I make to this is money is a tool, right? But it, the, the monopolization of money can only be used for one thing. And it's only useful for reallocating wealth. It can't add any value to the economy, right? You can print all the money in the world, but it doesn't add, it doesn't infuse the economy with any new productive uh, equipment or human time or, or anything of value. So it's only useful for reallocating wealth from those that use the money to those that can produce the money to the monopolist. 
And the example, I, I made this counter argument to uh, this hedge fund manager in Europe. I said, so if I walk into a field and I point a gun into the sky and I fire a bullet and the bullet falls five miles away and it kills someone, did I commit murder? Did I kill that person? Right. Whether I knew, like regardless of my knowledge of where that bullet landed, it was my action that fired the bullet, caused it to fall five miles away and kill this person. So my position there was that regardless of if I understand what I am doing, I am inflicting this pain in reality. So I, I do say that Jerome Powell is lying when he says that monetary policy has no connection to wealth disparity whatsoever because he is lying. I don't know if he knows that he's lying, but he's lying because it, we all in the Bitcoin space, we know the Cantillon effect. We know how it works. So the value of Bitcoin in all of this is that it just it, it actually obliterates the concept of monetary policy. It's no longer a policy. It's once again a function of natural law. Right. We have 21 million as this unshakable motif that's kind of set in stone and no one can do anything about it. It's put outside the reach of everyone forever. Um, and I, I, you know, that's how I like to think about it. I, I it just sort yeah. of, it well, disregards the intentionality of the current governors, but um, just focuses on the outcome, I guess, is my general point. Yeah. And there's two things there that I think, um, cause I, I think we, I think we look at it the same way, um, where in one way it's like, I don't know whether or not, whether there's intentionality, but I know the consequence. And so therefore it's their responsibility, right? Like you can't, you can't absolve culpability just because you were ignorant. Um, but, but, and there's two things that, that two quotes that come to mind. It's, um, the Draghi quote, I think, I believe it's Draghi or no, maybe it was Juncker where he said it was one of the two, uh, I think maybe it was Juncker, Jean-Claude Juncker. Um, when things get serious, you have to lie. Um, and then the idea when, I think it was a 2010 60 minute speech where, or, or interview where Bernanke went on to 60 minutes and he explained in this, you know, kind of made me think about this one of the questions in the chat um, where he said, uh, you know, there's a myth that what, what it is we're doing is printing money. We're not printing money. The, 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 the currency in circulation is not changing meaningfully. And, that is, that is an example of something that I look at and say, he is a, either straight up intentionally lying or he's being um, purposefully uh, obfuscating, the, purposefully obfuscating the truth or being highly disingenuous at best. Because yeah, in truth, they weren't printing money. They were creating digital dollars. So they weren't physically printing dollar bills. And so the, you know, the question in the chat, because I think you know, sometimes people are overly pedantic is I, I say to people when the fed does QE, every dollar that is created is created by the fed. Every dollar that is physically printed via the printing press is printed by the treasury, but there, but, but a dollar doesn't exist in the world without it being created at the fed first, which means that a, a dollar can't be printed at the treasury if the fed didn't first create it. So when I see things like Bernanke in 2010 saying, we're not printing money, I'm saying he, that, like that, there, there's no other way to say it, but you 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 are printing money. You're just doing it digitally because we live in a digital world, and and the consequence is exactly the same. And someone that is a you know as in quote quote in quote out cause intelligent because he's not actually intelligent um, would understand that because that because they do they are masters of of what they're kind of 
their their monetary policy is. Um, and so I so I do think that in certain times, like I would look at people like Jerome Powell and I would say, okay, like. I think it, we've gotten to the point where it's it's a combination of the Draghi where or, or, or Juncker, sorry, where it's things have gotten so serious that um, that he knows he has to lie. I don't think he knows the extent to which central banking creates instability in the economy, but or or extreme levels of inequality. But I I bet that he would be willing to say that there is some some role over the long term. He's probably not willing to admit um, the extent of it, but he also realizes, and this is this comes from another Bernanke quote, but it speaks to the psychology of the Fed. This was from a 2011 meeting during QE2 where he said, look, I can understand that monetary policy isn't the solution. You know, again, not willing to agree that it's the, it's the actual problem, but he says, I'm willing to agree that monetary policy isn't the solution, that it can't solve structural problems, and that structural problems may exist kind of in the underlying economy and, and with fiscal policy, uh, but we must do something, we must be palliative. And so I think that when I think about that kind of psychology of the central banker pulling from direct quotes of Bernanke, um, and, and, and for you know, central bankers from, from Europe as well, it's that they don't believe that they are the primary source or they would never be willing to accept that they're the primary source of instability, but they know to an extent that what they're doing has consequences. And they're also seeing the correlation of extreme levels of inequality forming. They don't understand the actual push and pull and the mechanism that causes it, but they know that there's some connection and they have to lie about it because in the most immediate term, their, their, their policy and the consequences of it is that it, it causes short-term short -term stability uh, at the consequence of long-term volatility. Um, and, and, and it's very high time preference thinking, but it's that idea of if I do something now, I can put the Band-Aid on it and I can actually solve the, pro quote, solve the problem for a day or two or a quarter or two quarters. Um, but they're doing that at the consequence of the entire economy falling apart in the long term. And that's something that they won't be able to control. So it's like they know that they're lying to an extent. They don't know, to, you know to what degree, um, but they're doing it, say, because they think that in the short term they're actually helping, which you, you one could make the argument, but only in the world where you are willing to trade the short term for the long term, which I think most of us, as we start to come to understand Bitcoin, where we become much more... Um, not not understanding the consequences of short-term thinking, but but how if we were to think with that low time preference and think in terms of kind of Bitcoin and generations that we certainly wouldn't you know would never make the decisions that central make bankers make do today, sacrificing kind of today and the youth for for the future. I agree, and I I actually think fiat currency is accurately described as a living lie. Right, that's how it began, right? So the, the fact that we had a paper that was redeemable for gold that was then uh, only fractionally backed by gold, then eventually not backed at all by gold. Uh, you know, we consider that money is intended to be this final extinguisher of debt and this medium of exchange. If it loses its rooting to what the market selected as money, that is by definition a lie, right? The market is naturally zeroing in on truth in the form of accurate prices, useful tools, um, and as I argue my piece, individual competitive competence or virtue. And in that sense, fiat currency, it is an actual lie. It is being held, it was held out as one thing and it was substituted for another. So it was a money substitute uh, that lost its ability to be substituted for money because you now cannot redeem that for anything. Um, and even if to that other point, 
even it's not perhaps literally printed. Um, that's why I try to distinguish between, I like to say money is something more like gold or Bitcoin. It's a bearer asset that can actually extinguish a debt. You know, it's 100% asset and 0% liability when it's transferred to a counterparty. Uh, currency, as I like to distinguish it, is what is typically derived, a derivative of money. Um, and that, that could be partially backed or, or no reserve like we have with fiat currency. So when they say they're not printing money, I think he is actually, I think to Parker's point, he's being literally pedantic, trying to say we're not actually printing money. We're just, you know, putting uh, new entries into a database. I think we've got it's inherently a high time preference. We lost you for just about 30, maybe 10 seconds there, but you're back. Uh, I was saying when you actually think about lying itself, it is a high time preference activity, right? Typically, someone's going to lie in the short run to avoid uh, consequences. And that may get them out of trouble or whatever it is to like get by for the short run. But once you've put that lie into the universe and say someone else figures out you, you told this lie, then all of a sudden you have to tell another lie to cover that up. Right. And before you know it, this thing snowballs out of control. And I think that's kind of a, a an analogy to what central banking is, is they started out with this original lie. Um, and now it's just this whole temple of lies is built around it to try and preserve its integrity. Um, and it, it just, it's, yeah. I I mean, uh, Rob, you're going to come back and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be talking, but yeah, I mean, what Rob's saying here, Parker is I think a really good point, right? Like it starts with the original sin, the original lie of the creation of the federal reserve. Right. And it's snowballed uh, with every decision to kick the can down the road to print, to solve, you know, uh, what is an economic deemed as an economic crisis in the short term with printing more money. Right. Um, but do these people like, I mean, are they really, okay. They spend a lot of time as well, like justifying all of these actions. Right. So like justifying the lies, uh, as they go down. So there's the entire academic tradition, uh, you know, built up for a century around, around justifying those decisions now. Do you think you were kind of getting at this earlier? Do you think that there's like awareness or self-awareness of this in the Fed uh, or the central banks, uh, you know, around the country that there's something wrong here, but it's too late now? I think there's probably more awareness in the in the in the mega banks, like you know, in the J.P. Morgans, the the Goldman Sachs, um, you know, Citibanks of the world. That uh, and, and the CEOs or the leadership of those organizations, I think they, I think that they know what the game is, and I think that they play the Fed, you know, kind of like a fiddle. Um, I think that the people that work at the Fed, um, given the incentives um, or, or or the trade-offs, I think that they are more idealistic, you know, driven by a, a version of utopia where they can just pull strings and people can print money and they can get the outcomes that they want. Um, and that, you know, I think about that because they're mostly academics. Um, you know, you know, Jerome Powell comes from the private sector, but um, kind of if you look at Bernanke and Yellen, that most of these people are are academics and don't operate in the real world and think that that most of their world view is is informed by that 
kind of lack of real world experience and, and, and living in the world of academia. But that, you know, one of the things I would point out is while I don't know if it's been proven, one of the speculations of what happened when the repo market broke was that JP Morgan was moving a massive amount of reserves, um, essentially transferring reserves to, um, to be in bonds and to be in treasuries. And they were basically recognizing that they were front running QE from the Fed. Um, and they did it for, for profit modes. You could say it, it, it's rational from their perspective, but that demonstrated an understanding of, of, of cause and effect as it related to, to their actions and what the Fed's um, response would need to be. Um, and, and so I think that you know, when you look at the bailouts from 2008, when you look at what's happening kind of in response to the repo market, kind of breaking in September, and then to, to what's happened subsequently with, with the global economic shutdown with COVID, that would be much more accurate to say that the big banks that benefit the most, that, that are the JP Morgans and the Goldman Sachs and the Credit Suisses and the Deutsche Banks, they understand how the strings are actually pulled more so than those at the Fed do. And the people at the Fed probably don't understand to what extent they're they're being taken advantage for and that, that, you know, it's the tail wagging the dog. Um, so I think that there, that there is intent, but that, but that's probably shifted more to those that have been directly bailed out that have taken the, the, the risk that, uh, that has caused moral hazard to form. And that over time, those big banks know that, that again, like, you know, it's, it's the old give, give a mouse a cookie. If you know that you've been bailed out once and the Fed, the Fed tried to demonstrate their independence with Lehman Brothers and that didn't work. Um, and, and they had to bail out everybody else thereafter. So I think it's, it's just the, the, the poorly aligned incentives and the, the combination of, uh, you know, uh, skin in the game or no skin in the game academics that, that are pulling strings that have massive unintended consequences and that those people don't have the, to feel the brunt of it, um, that they can continue to go on and that their jobs are going to be protected while, while they're basically throwing a massive monkey wrench in the entire economy over and over again by pursuing the same policy responses, just doing it in a bigger, bigger way. Rob, do you think that this was intentional, the beginning of the Federal Reserve? I mean, you've read, you know, we learn in Creatures from Jekyll Island, it seems like this was, uh, you know, the, the creation of the Federal Reserve was achieved with full knowledge of the, uh, you know, power that it would bestow upon the shareholders of the bank. Uh, maybe those involved now, uh, you know, as you said, the snowball has kind of, you know, rolled down the mountain quite quite a ways. Maybe those involved now have good intentions, but the original uh, lie, was that uh, an intentional one, do you think? I don't think there's much question, actually. Um, I mean, the model of central banking had been tried in times past, and it had proven very effective as, a as an apparatus for theft, basically. Um, and it gives its governors nearly unlimited power to, to do what they want. And so the other thing, it's if you just, you know, what does Charlie Munger say? Show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. If you just really simply look at the incentives of a central bank, right? They have, they're, they're a private organization. They have shareholders. Shareholders draw a dividend. So they have an incentive to increase their balance sheet, to increase, uh, increase the dividend payout. And as Parker said earlier, there's no, they have no accountability to the customers, the users of dollars, because we have no say in the matter, right? They're a full monopoly. There's no incentive for them to, to pay attention to or respond to customer preferences because we have no choice. We're forced to use dollars. And so it's um, their incentive is to lie, right? Even if you don't understand it per se, um, 
that, that just follow the incentives. And I would say re, either read The Creature from Jekyll Island or there's the abridged version, Dishonest Money. And I don't see how you could make an argument that it wasn't set up intentionally. I mean, they knew what they were doing. These are not dumb people. These are some of the smartest people in the world. And they're just people that have had greed, I guess, get the best of them, which is, you know, back to Bitcoin, it's this individual pursuit of self-interest is what got us to gold, right? People were basically trying to store their value in different things via negativa, to use a Talebian term, we landed on gold. It was the thing that could be, that supply could be compromised the least and the most slowly and the most predictably. But then they figured out another way to build a layer on top of it, what we call central banking today, um, that that re-enabled this, this deception through greed. But in Bitcoin world, it's, it's a set of unbreakable rules where we actually transmute individual pursuit of self-interest and greed into collective uh, security and market capitalization of the network. So it's all, that's how I, I look at it is that that's the big breakthrough is that Bitcoin is this uh, profoundly more effective system for channeling greed into something positive. That's amazing. Yeah. And that's what, and that's what capitalism is supposed to be in its ideal form. Right. But you, in order for that to, uh, that, that ideal to come true, you need to have the, the basic component of that mechanism, the capitalistic me- mechanism, the money <laughs> has to be, uh, you know, have that incentive at its core, uh, and not be able to be manipulated. Right. Um, so, I mean, in that case, in that sense, like, is this the first time that, uh, the, the idea of capitalism could actually like, be tested and come like in its, you know, ideal form. I, I think one of Parker's earlier points on uh, the economy emerging from a standardization to one money. It's like when we standardize under these protocols, we pick up so much more efficiency gains. And that's what an economy is, right? We're economizing our action collectively. And yeah, I think with money, we've just never had an unbreakable rule set. So the rules have always been shady and, and distorted and manipulated. Uh, and different governments fighting over who gets to kind of set the rules. We're, yeah. we're currently living in the American empire. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the capitalism in its purest sense was simply not possible before Bitcoin to the point where we we're talking about this yesterday. Maybe we need a new name. Uh, someone yeah. suggested sovereignism at one point, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, but it's definitely something different. It, it just shows you that Bitcoin will cause us to rewrite the history books and reframe our understanding of economics. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that uh, maybe the way that I would frame it is that we're, we're not, we're not going to necessarily see, you know, kind of capitalism in its, um, you know, kind of for the first, you know, truly for the first time, I think what, what we have today is, is far from um, kind of a free market and that it, that, you know, kind of it's often, I think, aptly described as, as crony cap- capitalism, but that um, free markets are the natural tendency of, kind of you know, human beings trying to interact to, to, you know, in their own self-interest, naturally kind of benefiting from cooperation. And that, you know, what, what I think we're going to see now is kind of we've seen an ebb and flow and evolutions of that over time and that, that, that it's like gravity. Um, that, that people do that, that, that when they are working in their own self-interest left kind of left to their own devices and left alone, they will cooperate and that there will be positive sum outcomes rather than zero sum or negative sum outcomes. And that what Bitcoin represents is kind of unmucking or 
freeing up or removing friction from kind of a system that, that, that at one time was, was working far more efficiently than, than it is today. And that, that is, that is possible of, of working today because, because that monetary system and because the communication system has been co-opted. Um, and because it's been manipulated so much that what we're going to be kind of, I think, evolving towards is getting back to a place in time where we are all speaking the same language of value and that we never were truly doing that, but we were perfecting that over time. And that was kind of the evolution of money and moving from, from one medium to another that, you know, one, 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 good may have been used as money in a certain local economy. And kind of as we've evolved, we've been perfecting what, what monetary mediums that we've been using to be able to access larger markets um, beyond just local economies. And that, that Bitcoin will be the, the true perfection of that because it will be, you know, when we think about something like gold, it's something very similar to gold, but rather than it being a common standard of value, because there was a point in time where gold really was a global standard, but the, the mechanism by which gold was principally communicated, or at least as it, as it evolved and matured, was not directly through that medium. That What we will see is that the medium that is the standard of value is actually how we directly communicate and interact with each other. That it will also be the, the method of payment and that that communication and the communication of information will be much more direct. And when you combine that with you know, the advancements of the internet, then We'll be able to to be able to communicate not only in terms of value, but but practically speaking, um, connecting far more people in the world. When you when you do that, and you have more people contributing to ideas and figuring out how to solve problems for other people. That the the sum of that economy is far greater than anything we will likely you know could possibly have seen before this point in time. Yeah, amazing. I agree completely, and I love uh, the language of value. I, I, so I guess you'd maybe call it a, an analogy, but I actually think it is it is a language. And if we stop to consider, so words that are part of language, they only have meaning as uh, categorical comparatives. Basically, we're using words to compare and communicate meaning, right? So if you look up the definition of a word, what do you find? You find more words, such that your understanding of any one word is dependent on this context of understanding of other words. And uh, this gets back to the logos, which I wrote some about in the piece, but logos is a Greek word that means ratio or word. So if we consider that um, the logos could mean a word itself, but it could also mean a ratio. And that's what prices are, right? These are exchange ratios uh, denominated in money. So this is how, it's like an economic telecommunication system. And these are the two primary means of interpersonal communication. It's words and prices. So I think we learned this lesson in the 20th century that you can't, like free speech is necessary for, I think the lesson we're learning now is that that also applies uh, to, to prices in an economy. They must be left undistorted, that when we try and, and manipulate the money supply, we're actually, it's, it's almost as bad, almost as catastrophic as suppressing the freedom of speech. And it, that's a good way to look at it, right? It's like words are this, this tool we're using to compare and communicate meaning, and money is this tool we're using to compare, compare and communicate value. If you disturb or distort either one of those media of communication, you create havoc in the world. It's like the Tower of Babel story, but, you know, with money, right? You're creating a 300 different languages to try to communicate value around the world. And 
you know, it just makes things so much more inefficient. And Parker in, uh, in one of his pieces talks about how uh, Bitcoin guarantees an inalienable right, you know, similar to the freedom of speech as it is, you know, guaranteed in the Constitution of the United States. Uh, but the, the idea that Bitcoin, you know, guarantees a monetary um, and uh, Parker, I think this fits in here. If you want to talk about that right, what right that uh, Bitcoin guarantees uh, to its users? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I've talked about this idea in a, in a couple different pieces, but one of the, um, I think my last piece, I, I took a, a tweet from Vitalik Buterin, the, the founder of Ethereum, and he, and he had a quote that, that said something along the lines of, um, you know, the idea that you could have um, a, a fixed percentage of the entire world's money supply for an indefinite period of time sounds very um, oligarchic to him. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it was a really interesting tweet, not because of what it says about Vitalik or about um, about Ethereum, but but that is the argument that is made against a sound monetary standard, but it is it actually articulates the reason and, and, and the power of a tool such as that, that, that if you flipped it around and you said, okay, what if everybody had access to that tool? What if the poorest people in the world could convert their time and energy into a form of money that could not be manipulated and was fixed in supply? That levels the playing field with somebody like a Paul Tudor Jones, a billionaire in New York, that, that somebody um, who is on the lower end of the economic spectrum in Argentina or Brazil or Nicaragua, wherever they may be, at the Bitcoin network level, everybody is treated equal, um, and that 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 the the substance of that is that whatever they choose to do in the world, whoever they are, wherever they are, they can con contribute value that is inherently subjective, and that is one thing about money that that money is what allows us to take something that is inherently su subjective, like value, and be able to objectively measure it. Um, and that really is kind of, and, and that what that is what forms really the foundation of a communication system. Um, and so when when I think about that, and you say, "Hey, who would benefit most from leveling that playing field?" and and what are the consequences of of this tool being available to everybody? That 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 that's where it becomes, you know, when I when I refer to it as an inalienable right, when you think about it as at its very core, it's people recognize that, that money is solving an intersubjective problem and that there are benefits to trade and specialization. And that's the, the idea. And I saw somebody put in the comment that self-interest is not greed and it isn't. It's self-interest is I'm figuring out how best to solve my own needs. And the, and, and the, the most effective and efficient way to do that is to, to solve somebody else's problems. And if I do that, then, and, and if everybody is thinking and doing that, uh, not because we're all you know, utop you know, utopias um, that that we actually will act in our own self interest by serving others, and so, um, but but at that core, it's if I'm if I'm looking at that problem set, and and I and I need money as a tool to help me solve a problem to 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 work in my own self interest and to help others, that that all I am doing is I'm I'm choosing to convert time and energy into a medium that will best capture value that will allow me to trade and, and get the benefit of that value that I'm creating today in the future from a wide range of people. And, and what could be more fundamental of a right than to convert that into a digital token? Like why would, why could anybody prevent me from choosing 
by force to say, no, you have to take your time and put it into this month, because that's the consequence. If someone were to say, no, you can't use Bitcoin, they would essentially be saying, you can't convert your time and energy into a digital token. Um, and and that the reverse side of that is, if you can't do that, then you're forcing me to say what you're going to say, I have to put my time and energy into into dollars, uh, because because that, that is the reverse side of the coin. And so it is one of the most fundamental rights that's to say, what what are you allowed to convert time and energy into? And if you're not allowed to convert that into money, um, then kind of your most basic freedom and your ability to voluntarily and peaceably coordinate and cooperate with anybody else in your economy has suddenly been critically impaired, I think is, is, is the core idea. I think it's a great point. And I would add that it's almost like this is Bitcoin represents the discovery of the freedom of speech in a lot of ways, right? Because we have freedom of speech, the, again, the word verbal version, but we haven't had this freedom of speech in where do we store our time and energy and how do we communicate it? That's always been distorted historically. So it's, it's like the vote that actually matters too. Like we think in Western society, oh, I go and vote for this politician. He represents my interests and that's how we, uh, create change or, or stability in society, but that's not really what matters. What the vote that matters is how you spend your money. Um, and that, that selection has just historically been really narrow for people. We haven't had a, a sound store value because it was antithetical to the fiat currency system. And um, for the first time, you can, you can consider Bitcoin as like the way, the money through which we can communicate our preferences in a voice that cannot be distorted or muted. Right. Like politicians and governments and central banks in the world are so uh, aware of this uh, asset because it, it's a competitive threat um, that's that's it, it running countervailing to their their operation. Right. Their, their operation is to maintain this uh, narrative, this false narrative uh, and, and continue to have people operating in their system. And having a lack of options, whereas Bitcoin gives you uh, um, free options to express yourself. And another way to think about this is there's an old uh, clinical psychologist named Jean Piaget, and he talked about the difference between equi equilibriated structures and disequilibriated structures. And an equilibriated structure is essentially a voluntary game. So it's a game that people want to play because of their own self-interest. And a disequilibrated structure is something where the rule the rules are imposed. Like you have to play by these rules because I said so, because I have a gun or whatever. And he, he made the point that over time, the equilibrated structure always outcompetes the disequilibrated structure because you have to enforce the disequilibrated structure. There's a cost to enforcing these rules, to protecting the turf, to suppressing competition, such that over time, as Parker kind of said, uh, people's individual self-interest becomes like gravity, right? They just gravitate towards this voluntary game. And that's what Bitcoin is. It's a voluntary game out competing this involuntary uh, system of theft we call central banking. And disintermediating, disintermediating everything. It's the, you know, it, the internet and software and, and digital networks are, and protocols are disintermediating like, you know, industry after industry. Uh, like this is sort of the ultimate purpose of the internet. You know, like it's it's both guaranteeing to a much larger extent than a state ever could 
a freedom of speech. It's much easier for me to express myself, uh, you know, if I'm in an authoritarian state uh, and get it out over the internet than it would be otherwise. But then ultimately we have the language of, of value here um, you know, being voluntarily expressed uh, over this over this medium as well. So it's, uh, it, it's a, as Rob puts it, um, a one a zero to one moment, you know, in your in your piece that you uh, the Bitcoin and the number zero that it's it's a solitary moment, a singular moment in human history, the the invention of absolute scarcity. Um, let's dive into that idea a little bit. I'd, I'd love to hear you two kind of bat it back and forth. Um, the idea that you can only create absolute scarcity once. Uh, Rob, you want to kick it off? Yeah, sure. So I argue that the invention of Bitcoin uh, behind that invention is the discovery of absolute scarcity for money. And I, I specify it to money because um, you can create these crypto tokens with a fixed supply that may be a representative of something else. But I think in the sphere of money that it can only really happen once because and the the case study I use there is Bitcoin Cash, right? So we had this um, ideological divide that um, ostensibly larger block sizes were needed for higher transaction throughput at the base layer was Bitcoin Cash's argument. Bitcoin Core was essentially saying that we needed to maintain um, small blocks to maximize decentralization of the protocol, which uh, protects its censorship resistant qualities. And there was a divide, right? So there was a divide at the social layer for Bitcoin. And we've We've seen that play out over the past few years. We've seen the market capitalization in Bitcoin terms of Bitcoin Cash collapse. So as a student of the markets, I think that is a, an empirical point that the absolute scarce money supply of Bitcoin is a one-time discovery. Uh, the, the, the only way to really compete with it at this point is to fork it. And we've seen that fork play out. Right. It's already happened. Bitcoin Cash is an abject failure. And when you when you step back also to consider that money is just a single purpose technology, again, it's just just a tool for moving value across time and space that and its value is uh, supported by its liquidity and network effects that it, it has this uh, centripetal effect towards one 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 standard. Again, back to the earlier point. The more standardization we add, the more economic efficiency we gain. So given that all people need to trade globally, we only need one money. Um, so in that general respect, I think absolute scarcity is perfect scarcity, right? You can't even negative scarcity wouldn't make sense for reasons that I outlined. Like there would be a, it would reintroduce political vectors as to who, who benefits from the deflationary monetary policy. Any inflation doesn't make sense because it's just, Again, who benefits from it? Zero is like this perfect shelling point for the scarcity of money. Yeah, I think one of the one of the ideas, and I can't remember the specific quote, but one, I remember one of the ideas that I came away from the number zero and Bitcoin was the idea, or at least something connected as I was reading it, where there's like no energy leaking outside the system. Um, and, and talking about, I think it was when you were talking about kind of the, the concepts of infinity and zero and, um, and, and that, you know, there was just something about it. It's just weird the way something, you know, for some reason, certain things connect, you know, and you could say the same thing to 10 different people and some, the 11th person would interpret it differently. But this idea that kind of with, with, you know, a, um, a finitely scarce 
form of money and in zero terminal inflation, that the consequence of that is that that no energy escapes out of the system. And when I when I when I was thinking about that idea and, and trying to relate it in in or at least how I was thinking about it in my latest piece, it's this idea that if you you know kind of because within again academic circles and intellectual economic debates, people argue for the benefit of being able to print money to, to ease financial conditions and spur aggregate demand. But if you actually start to understand what the role of money is and that it actually is a communication system and it's a way that we objectify what is a subjective concept of value and that the goal that you're trying to to facilitate through money is to be able to communicate with others and 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 convert the value that you create into a broad set of goods created and services created by other people to actually act in your own self-interest that in that world you're actually incentivized to to communicate with more and more people that if there's a, a wider range of choice of things that you could potentially convert your own time and energy in into the time of energy and others and that that monetary network as it grows actually benefits you that uh, thinking about that world it's that the actual amount of money is the nominal amount is not meaningful um, and that 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 what we're actually ascertaining from it is the exchange ratios of how much in aggregate and kind of individually in an aggregate what people value and, and, and how things are valuable relative to others. That, that money is that tool that says, hey, um, you know, how many, how many cars do I need to produce to, to buy a house or you know, kind of how many apples do I need to, to sell to buy an iPhone? Um, that, that at that root level, it's all I'm trying to learn through, through a monetary medium it, it are you know, any number of relative exchange ratios of various different goods and services. And that, that if you have that finite, scarce kind of form of money, no energy is leaking out of the system and more perfect information is being communicated. And that kind of connecting it back into this, this idea that if you are going to get money in the Bitcoin world, the it has to come, not again, not and hundred percent of the time, but that the best way to do that is by like, think about 21 million Bitcoin, no more Bitcoin can be created. I have zero. How am I going to get it? There's a lot of people in the world that will have Bitcoin and I have to deliver value to one of them that, that in that world, the, the positive externalities of the least path of resistance to getting money that opens you up to this various range of choice for all these people that contribute to a monetary network is at the inception point, delivering value to others, uh, producing for others more than you consume so that you can have savings. Um, and that kind of then when you compare that vis-a-vis -vis the current system, which is, you know, if you looked since 2008, 80% of the dollars that exist in the world have been created by the Fed in the last 12 years. That in the dollar system, you can either get money by delivering values to others or by and large, 80% of the money that exists, you can either get it through delivering value or by the Fed giving you more money. And if you're, if you're one of the, the people that are so um, lucky to, to, to be in that seat where the Fed gives you money, um, and which system has better incentives and which system is more prone to have better outcomes, the one in which in order to get money, you, you, you know, kind of in overwhelming respect, the, the easiest way to do that would be to deliver value to others in return for that money or um, to have a co-opted system where, you know, one in 10 or one in 20, you know, dollars that exist over time will will be ha will have been earned via actually delivering value to others, and that 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 system inherently becomes more corrupt than the one that we're shifting toward. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think that's a great point, and it's 
your the incentive system is either guiding people towards work or towards theft, right? If you're trying to get near the fiat currency spigot, you're basically benefiting from theft via inflation. Whereas if you're living in a society that the money can't be artificially increased, you have to work and add value to to earn money. And another way to maybe think about this um, is that all all market value is driven by scarcity, right? Everything is trading at a ratio to everything else. Uh, so scarcity itself is just a relative concept, right? It's just a relative to this good is, is more scarce than this good. And at the, the bottom of that really is the scarcity of time, right? The, t- the time or energy necessary to produce these things that are relatively scarce. So if we see that, that scarcity is relative, all things trade uh, as a ratio to all other things, the most tradable thing in any economy is money. A money with a perfect scarcity is by definition the most scarce and valuable thing, right? So it's, it's it, when you come to see scarcity as the bedrock of market value, then you, I think it helps you see absolute scarcity as kind of the, the perfected state of money in a way, right? It's just the, the, to get into the Taleb concept of uh, Wittenstein's ruler it says, if you're, if you're measuring a table, but you can't trust the dimensions of the ruler, you're not sure if you're measuring the table or measuring the ruler, right? You need a money, a fixed frame of reference that does not bend, um, does not, the supply doesn't expand or contract based on economic activity. It becomes this absolute unit of measurement for valuations in the real economy. And um, in that sense, you know, I think that that is Bitcoin's center of gravity is that it's that perfectly scarce money. Um, and that's why people are, the incentives just cause people to collapse into it over time. Let, let's talk about that that value though, the, the difference between like value in a Bitcoin world and a fiat world. All right. So Parker, I'm going to shoot this one at you. We have value, quote unquote, uh, you know, like accrued uh, in, and we, and we account for it, you know, in various ways, right? Um, that value is, includes, um, you know, all kinds of like rehypoth- rehypothecated money, uh, you know, the unknown question of whether or not there's going to be more money printed at any given moment. Um, and, and, you know, all of these sort of financial, financially engineered, um, you know, methods of creating value, uh, that doesn't like take that away and from the, on the base level in a Bitcoin world, like how much of this value that's out there now is actually real. Uh, and if we move to like a Bitcoin world, like, what does that mean? Like, what is like, how, how does that value, um, deflate into the new economy? Like what's going to happen there? How's that play out? Yeah. So I I think that that, you know, obviously is impossible to predict. Um, but I think I'll maybe like sh- maybe shine some light in terms of how I think about it conceptually or about how I think directionally how a Bitcoin economy would would differ from um, f- from the legacy economy and then kind of some key structural differences. I think one of the concepts that that um, sits at the core of it is that you know, this concept that that Robert was talking about earlier, which is that when you know kind of when we think about the operation of printing money, whether it's the Treasury literally printing money or the Fed digitally creating dollars and transferring them around um, the financial system. It is that, that all of that financialization 
um, and, and money create, like starting at money creation, it's sending false signals through the market. Um, and, and, and the way that I would relate what that means is um, by sending a false price signal, essentially by printing money, every signal that's being sent through the pricing system becomes manipulated and ultimately becomes false in the sense that it would be different. And those pricing, the price system and, and the, the local prices and with, throughout the economy would inherently be different if not for those operations. Um, and that the, the economy is set on a different course as a direct result of them. And that um, if, if you start out sending false signals, then the, 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 the natural result of that is that you can, in order to sustain the direction, you have to continue to do that. And so um, it become the, the entire incentives that underpin the economy become uh, manipulated and distorted to the extent that they have, like, they have to be perpetually uh, manipulated in order to sustain any, any semblance of, of quote unquote stability. So, um, and, and when you, when you change those incentives, and I, when I think about kind of the current economy and what it looks like, Today, the banking system has become the epicenter and the bleeding heart of economies all over the world. Um, and and somebody would look at that and say, "Hey, that 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 doesn't seem like it's a very uh, noteworthy comment to make." But the reality is that it wouldn't exist that way if not for central banking and if not for um, the the Fed continuing to print 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 and print more money each time um, the the credit system. Um, has expanded and then attempts to, to contract or even collapse. And so the, the consequence of that is rather than banking being kind of one, you know, kind of one sector within an economy that provides a service to all the others, it's really shifted to be the center and such that the, that the Fed and central bankers and academics all over the place come to believe that if the banking system went away, that that the, that the world would cease to exist. And they think that way because it has its tentacles in to, to the entire real economy. It's like it's shifted from if you were to think about horizontally all of these different kind of economies servicing each other, you know, banking, telecommunications, healthcare, you know, kind of uh, agriculture, energy, kind of all being interrelated and servicing each other, money and banking, because we've shifted over to the allocation of resources in the economy being facilitated directly through the monetary medium to a world where information is communicated and resources are allocated through the function of credit, that, that through that process, and it's, and it's happened directly as a consequence of the Fed, that the banking sector, rather than just being one sector of many, has become literally the epicenter, that, that, that all other kind of the, the, the successful, at least today on a day-to-day -day basis, successful operation of any business is dependent on the banking sector. Um, either to move money around, not necessarily through credit, through debit, but but also through the function of credit. And that, that the core difference in the Bitcoin economy, I think, will be that that banking sector will shift from being the epicenter of the economy to being just one segment of the economy that is not more or less important than any others. It will likely be less important, say, than healthcare, energy, you know, telecommunications, whatever it may be, the things that produce real value in the world, their status will be raised to the actual, you know, kind of, you know, those being what is truly kind of delivering value and they won't be dependent on the banking system. The banking system will only be valued to the extent that they truly deliver value in an unmanipulated world, not in one where the system has become rigged to shift it 
such that every other economic sector is dependent on banking. I think that's the, that is the core consequence and that the result of what that looks like from there is very impossible to predict. It's that there, there still will be kind of credit. There still will be stock exchanges. There still will be stocks, but that business and that sector of the economy will be far smaller as a consequence and people will not need to funnel through it in order to access other points of the economy. There will be more direct communication between telecom sectors, energy sectors, healthcare, um, agriculture. Yeah. What happens to all that value, man? Like there's, it's to me, I feel like as I'm learning about this stuff, that there's just like this layer, like you're saying of real value, you know, value that's being produced that, uh, you know, that, people want to consume, right? And therefore it has value. And then there's just like this whole layer of like just vapor, vapor value that doesn't actually exist except for in, you know, ledgers and databases of uh, in this middleman industry of a money changing industry that they've sort of built on, on this house of cards. Like what happens to all of that? You know, I mean, most, uh, who's going to lose in, in the popping of that, uh, you know, that entry? Is it mostly the financial industry that's out or are they, have they like, are their tentacles really going to cause damage in the real, you know, the business is causing, you know, creating real value too. Well, I think that there's a reality that that everybody in the world is currently operating on manipulated price signals and that we're all going to have to bear to varying different degrees the consequences of easy money and, and kind of monetary mediums all over the world um, being printed to the extent that eventually the the forms of money that we're all relying on today will, will, will eventually fail. And that I believe that Bitcoin will be the, the, the currency that practically everybody in the world is, is using to, to fuel their economy. So I think that the, the short answer to that question is everybody, you know, like that when we think about the, the, the value of like the value, there's a $250 trillion, you know, global credit system. Um, and that a lot of that value is, is going to be proven to be impaired. So like on a direct basis, I'd say the people that overwhelmingly hold those assets are going to, to figure out that nobody else values them and that, that, that they, you know, kind of the, the price signal of the par value of those bonds or whatever they're currently trading at will prove to be kind of errantly, um, errantly wrong. And when I say wrong, it's kind of like thinking about this idea of there's only 20, there will only be 21 million Bitcoin and all it's capturing is a more accurate view of, of what people value. And today right. it's essentially saying there's 250 trillion of, uh, you know, of a global credit system and, and, and it costs, you know, $40,000 to go buy a car. Like how, how much do we value the car rather than, than holding a debt instrument? And that, that, <laughs> right. that, that value, that there will be some degradation of value in the aggregate because there will be some instability as these large currency and monetary systems continue to break down. Like that's, that's essentially what we see that, 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 you know, kind of during the COVID economic shutdown, like there's real consequences to, to, to shutting down an entire economy that these things aren't like static things that exist in the world that, that all economic systems and all local economies are so interdependent and that if you throw a monkey wrench in one, it's going to have a ripple effect into others. And that right. when, when economies start to break down because money starts to break down, it's, it's like the, the, the quintessential example is, is, our, is Venezuela, right? Like who, 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 was, who you know, lost the most there? Everybody lost, right? Everybody loses by economic instability. 
and everybody gains in the end of the day by economic stability, and that, that, that will actually be fostered and kind of improved upon through the use of a more stable form of money, but that there's probably going to be some turbulence between yeah. then and now where we're going to have to probably feel some pain in aggregate almost certainly. Um, but at the other side, Bitcoin re- represents that that anchor or rock that allows us to kind of bootstrap and pull ourselves out of it. Because this if not, wanna- then the world would go the way of Venezuela, essentially. This is why you want to own real assets right now. Um, Rob, any thoughts there? Before I move yeah. on, uh, one more question for you. Yeah, I thought that um, that's a great point. So money, you can consider it as kind of the base layer protocol for an economy, right? It's what we're using to facilitate all transactions. So if that base layer is compromised, then the scope of trade is reduced and trade is what generates wealth, right? That's me doing what I do best, you doing what you do best, all of us trading. That's how we do that's how we accomplish greater results with the same or less efforts, right? That's the, the, the root of productivity and comparative advantage, if you will. And so I, I like to think that in this transition, we'll actually go back towards the original functions of banking, right? Where today we're in this crazy world where uh, market prices have become more of a function of monetary policy than supply and demand, right? Because again, Price signals, price signals are totally disrupted. Um, but I think we'll go back to where a bank essentially provides two functions, which were custody, right? They were actually custodying money um, and other assets, and they were doing uh, maturity matching. So they would match, time match, uh, deposit, they would time lock depositors' um, savings and use those to lend out and do uh, credit analysis on investments, right? So you have a, a customer um, keeping their savings in a bank and what we would call maybe a CD today that has like a one year time lock. They get paid 5%. The bank turns around and loans that money out because savings is the basis of investment. They loan that money out um, at say seven or 8% and they net the difference. So bank was providing this custody and maturity matching function. And that's what it, that's what I think it will get back to providing on the free market. Um, and if we, it, Another thing to think about is if gold itself had been, if we were able to secure gold cheaply, so we didn't need to centralize it in vaults to pick up that economy of scale, and if we could transmit gold digitally, right, which is basically what Bitcoin is, we wouldn't have any of this. There would be no central bank, basically. The central bank was developed on the shortcomings of gold. So I think Bitcoin is kind of removing those shortcomings is another way to look at it, eliminating central banking. There's just no need for it uh, because it resolves those, those shortcomings of gold. And um, the, the thing I see on the back of that is a return to value investing, right? Where money as a claim on the savings of society at full market penetration would, would tend to appreciate year over year in line with, with savings growth or productivity growth, um, fluctuating with, with, with demand, of course. But say it's the global economy is growing at two to 5% per year. That's what money would tend to appreciate as, and that would be your benchmark rate for investing. You would only allocate into projects that had a a prospective return higher than that benchmark rate. Whereas today we have, you know, it's, you have to put your money anywhere except fiat currency to protect it. Right. And that leads to all this capital mass allocation, the unicorns, the exacerbation of the boom bust cycle, 
all of these these things uh, we get away from, I think, on a, a Bitcoin standard. So I'm mindful of time. Can you guys hang out for a little bit longer or do you need to, to jet? This is the end of our scheduled time here. I've got about 15 more minutes. Yeah, 15. Okay, cool. Um, all right, so this is just an idea that came up when I was going through you guys' pieces. And it's uh, it's an I thought it was an interesting question, uh, just kind of like a prompt to get some thoughts from you guys' uh, your guys' brains. So Rob has this quote in his piece, "The Number Zero in Bitcoin," and it's uh, zero is the fulcrum between real and imaginary number planes. All right, and it implies then that Bitcoin is the fulcrum between the physical and digital planes. Right. Um, so Rob, you can kick this one off. Do you think that, first of all, it's kind of two, two levels there. They sound like they might be the same question, but I think they're a little different. Do you think digital scarcity is possible without an anchor in physical reality? And does absolute scarcity require a combination of digital, digital and physical planes? Um, digital scarcity, to my knowledge, is not possible it's not it's not possible to provide assurance of supply limitation without some form of energy expenditure so i think to have digital or absolute scarcity you have to have a connection to physical reality to thermodynamic reality via an expenditure of energy um and what was the second part of the question do you think absolute scarcity requires a combination of digital and physical planes like do you think it would be even possible without humanity living in both the digital and physical planes now? Yeah, I don't, I wrote about this in the piece that like, how could you guarantee the supply of anything physically, right? It's just not possible because we can always create more of anything. It's just kind of a function of our time. Um, it, it, even gold, right? Which was the best, tool for mapping the scarcity of, of time and energy that money's intended to, if you could all of a sudden make everyone go mine gold, we could increase its supply a lot more quickly. Um, so there's something special about Bitcoin existing in the, the non-corporeal informational domain that we can establish this consensus, right? Every 10 minutes that it's still the same amount uh, the supply schedule is still being executed uh, as it's laid out, and there's still 21 million supply cap. I don't think that's possible without the constant iterating digital consensus. I don't see how you could do that without without that. What about the concept itself? <laughs> like the concept of absolute scarcity, right? Like, does that even exist in the natural world? And we, it, you know, do, can that concept exist? Like is this a new idea that we've been presented with, right? Like, the, I guess this is, this is what you're saying with the number zero in Bitcoin, right? Like the idea of absolute scarcity is completely novel to human thought. Yeah, so here's, a, here's maybe another way to think about it. It's absolute scarcity exists before Bitcoin. It's either in the form of time, which is quite mysterious, or uh, thermodynamics in the law of conservation of energy mass, right? Energy cannot be created nor destroyed in the universe. Um, and I think that's maybe another good way to look at Bitcoin is that it is a, a monetary technology that for the first time perfectly maps onto the absolute scarcity of time or energy in the universe. 
And that's what we're trading here, right? We're trading our time and energy through money. And so if there's a, if it doesn't represent that, uh, if the medium doesn't represent the substance with high fidelity, which in the case of Bitcoin, it's perfect fidelity, right? Then, then signal gets lost and being, there's room for distortion. So I think in that way that yes, it is a, a concept that, that exists prior to man, like the law of thermodynamics have been here way before we have been here, but we have now figured out uh, this protocol that maps onto these laws. And it, the other interesting parallel here is, you know, the old saying, there's no free lunch in the universe that comes from thermodynamics. So ther the thermodynamics are the physical laws that we cannot break. That's the right. law of physics that we can't manipulate or change. And by mapping a monetary system onto that, we have developed this unbreakable set of rules for money, right? That we call Bitcoin. So that's where it, in kind of the grand scientific philosophical sense, I think it's just, I don't like to use the word inevitable, but as close to inevitable as you can get, because it's so perfectly maps onto the fundamental nature of reality that how do you escape it? Parker, you've written a whole piece about this, Bitcoin being inevitable. Uh, so I know where you stand on that subject, but um, do you have any thoughts about the kind of this, the special nature of the relationship between the physical world and, and the digital world uh, for Bitcoin for Bitcoin as a money and, you know, as, uh, as an idea? Yeah, I definitely have some ideas. I, I would say that, um, you know, both Robert and then uh, one of the co-founders here at, at Unchained Drew Bonsell. If you really want to get cosmic, you should get Drew on, and he could start to you know really really dig dig into these these subjects better than I could. But I, but I do think, in short, um, and I don't want to go on a long tangent, but I think that the the short answer, or at least my my perspective, is there does need to be um, a connection between the physical world and the digital world in order for that absolute or finite scarcity to exist, and that. Yes, the only way that absolute scarcity in the sense that we're describing it can exist is that it exists in a digital form. Um, because I think that, you know, to, to Robert's point, one of the, the, the ideas of, you know, kind of we saw kind of over, over millennia, kind of humans constantly searching for, for better and better forms of this, this tool that we refer to as money and that, that gold had been that standard and that there, that in the physical world, um, yes, there is, you know, a finite amount of, uh, of gold, but from a practical application and our ability to, to use it and to find more that, that, that it practically is not finite. Um, and that, that when we combine the, the kind of anchoring this, the, this digital form of money in the real world, um, through energy expenditure and, and being able to prove that, that, that work and the energy has been consumed and that's the function by which this digital form of money moves, that when you combine that with the, the properties that only something digital can have and, and, and the key distinctions being that, that it can be transmitted you know, over a communication channel and that it can be easily divided and, and moved at very low cost, that that is something that can't exist merely in the physical world. And that, that when you kind of create that link and create that digital form factor of it, that, that it actually causes us to stop searching for other forms of money. Um, that, that we've, we've kind of in, in the current kind of iteration, truly perfected it um, and, and, and reached that point where once we accept that more money can't be, can't be derived, that we actually stop 
fulfilling the unproductive activity or pursuing the unproductive activity of trying to print more money. Uh, you know, which which essentially is, you know, I think something that people inevitably, you know, attempt to pursue. They try, you know, gold with fool's gold and, you know, kind of dollars with with, with financial engineering um, that, that people just by their very nature are incented to try to, to create money out of thin air. They, they, they want the free lunch, but that, but if we, if we kind of live in this new reality where people accept that it is impossible to do this and that the incentives all around, because it is in the form factor of being digital and because we don't need, you know, kind of, um, representative technology, like the dollars that, that, that help solve various limitations of gold, that, uh, that people will actually stop the pursuit of, printing more and more money. And that is really what creates the, this kind of finite and absolute scarcity is that we, that we all agree that more can't be created so we can get on with our lives of actually doing things that other people value. I love it, man. Thank you guys so much. This is our episode with the Bitcoin philosophers. <laughs> this is uh, this is the moniker that we're, we're giving you guys. I, I kind of hope it sticks because I think it's pretty cool. Uh, so Rob, thanks so much for your time, man. Parker, appreciate it. Yeah, enjoyed it, guys. Thanks, Brady. Thanks, We'll sign off. Uh, go to swanbitcoin.com slash breedlove. You'll get $10 of free Bitcoin dropped to your account. You can support Rob's work. Uh, you can also grab your own SwanForce ref link at swanbitcoin.com slash enlist. That's this week. See you next week when we have Danielle DiMartino Booth and Michael Saylor, GigaChad himself, Michael Saylor. Uh, Danielle and Michael will be uh, together for the first hour and we'll be talking about macroeconomics, Fed policy, how it affects businesses and, and running a, corpora a corporation in America. And for the last half hour, uh, it'll just be one-on-one -on -one with me and Michael Saylor. Uh, that should be a fantastic fire episode. So stay tuned for next week. Thanks all.